Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. If you look at the overall record of, of the Neanderthals, so they, you know, they emerge around 350,000 years ago. There used to be sort of a, a bit of a cliche that Neanderthals kind of evolved and then just did the same old stuff for 300,000 years. Um, and that's that's not fair to them. They did have their own culture history they innovated different technologies and we can see quite specific little regional flowerings of ways of doing things. That's Rebecca Rag Sykes, who has written a wonderful and eye-opening book about the Neanderthals. It's called Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Debt and Art. As a proud descendant of Neanderthals, I was eager to learn why she believes the latest genetic and archaeological research suggests they were a lot more creative than we've given them credit for. This is so great to be talking to you because you know all about Neanderthals, and I'm so thrilled to have a genetic connection to Neanderthals. Oh, that's wonderful. You've had a test, have you? Yeah, I I only have about 2%. I understand that a lot of people have about 2%, so I'm not not so... I've never been tested. No kidding. After all this time studying them and writing about them, you don't know how much is in you? No, I don't know why. I I guess I I don't. I don't know. I want it to remain a surprise. (laughs) I'm so curious to know more about them. You know, I did uh, an interview with Sante Pabbo years ago, just before the DNA results came in showing that there had been interbreeding between humans and modern humans and Neanderthals. And... I wonder, how much do we know about that? How much do we know about the interbreeding? That was a decade ago that we found out that there had been interbreeding. I think it was a massive surprise. And since that point, quite a lot has shifted, um, not only in terms of the genetics, actually, but the archaeology in the sense that we now understand that early Homo sapiens were dispersing out of Africa a lot earlier than we used to think. Mm. So the potential time span over which the genetic interaction was happening um, is a lot bigger and there is interbreeding happening, although it was always of a small enough scale that the Neanderthals and us remained physically distinctive from each other. What was under the word kindred? Why, Why did you call the book Kindred? I called it that because, well, many reasons. One, they are the closest in evolutionary terms to us out of the the broader hominin family. We have known them the longest. They were the first 
hominin, you know, ancient other kind of human that we ever found in the middle of the 19th century. They've been there from the beginning of our discovery of our own origins, you know, so in that sense, they've they've been with us the whole way through as we've been discovering this, you know, wonderful, deep, ancient story about ourselves. Um, but also, I think it's it is a nod to what I think the past thirty or forty years of of archaeology has shown, which is that many of the red lines that we used to draw in behavioural terms between us and Neanderthals have really begun to be sort of smudged away as archaeology itself gets better at drawing out evidence from this, you know, extremely old ancient past where we don't have masses of stuff to deal with. We've got a lot better at it. And the the the, the more sophisticated our techniques get, the more similar Neanderthals appear in general terms, um, in you know, in terms of them not being super ape-like in their bodies, that they actually were really good hunters, that they didn't just eat big game, they ate small game as well. They could hunt that perfectly fine. They ate plants, they lived on the coasts and ate seafood. All these things just in subsistence that have been claimed before that maybe made them a bit rubbish, none of those actually stand up anymore. So overall, the distance between them and us has shrunk and then, of course, we found out only a decade ago that we have that legacy in us. I'm turning sideways. Can you see the shelf right around my eyebrows? <laughs> That's where my 2% is. <laughs> a small one. <laughs> Why did they go away? What happened? Well, I mean... Technically, they didn't go away because, uh, um, you know, if you want to talk about extinction, they're still here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, why do we not look like Neanderthals, you know? Um, why why are we still around looking like us and, and they disappeared in that sense? It really, at the timescales that we're looking at, you don't need a dramatic, like, massive apocalyptic thing to happen. All you need is for early homo sapiens people to have a few more babies a year and neanderthals to not and for them both to you know be living in difficult um stressful intensive lifestyles and that difference will mount up over time um you know so it may just come down to you know what sound kind of boring demographic processes basically um the ability to just have a couple extra babies a year for them to survive that might be all you need. Um, so I think probably most archaeologists would speculate that a number of different factors may have given sort of the upper hand to Herba sapiens groups, but exactly which ones were important in different parts of the Neanderthal world might have been different. So it sounds like our slogan at the time was make love, not war. Well, <laughs> certainly some of that was going on, yeah. <laughs> I think this is one of the things that we all have to remember, you know, including researchers like me, we we say, oh, the Neanderthals. And but they lived over such an enormous span of time, huge area geographically. You know, they're not European, really. They are Western Eurasian. Intriguingly, what we can see from the genetics across multiple samples is that 
Neanderthals were probably living in small groups that were not very well connected to other groups. Um, so uh, the regional population that they were in, what we call their effective breeding population, was also pretty small, sort of under 100. But in contrast, although we don't have many genetic samples from early Homo sapiens um, individuals, the ones we do have, none of them show a breeding population as small as it is in Neanderthals. So that implies that they had more interconnected groups basically maybe the overall numbers were equally tiny but they were their social network was more extensive and probably stronger and so there the implications that there is a, a foundational difference there in how those societies actually work and one of the things that might have been part of that is that you really start to see after about forty-five thousand years ago associated with the early homo sapiens um individuals and and sort of the the broader stone tool cultures that we associate with them you see more evidence for things that are easier to interpret as symbolic objects basically like pierced stones um sort of more carefully formed bone objects um pierced teeth shells so there's the odd interesting object that neanderthals carried or and sometimes they use pigment they sometimes collected fossils things like this but it's nowhere as near as much as we see with those early Homo sapiens groups. And that would make sense um, because one of the ways that you maintain your social networks are through material culture and um, through shared uh, sort of symbolic systems of understanding and objects that you can actually exchange as well. So it's when you kind of put all these different things together, it does point to a different sort of um, a, a real difference in how, how people were living at large scales in the landscape. So that may have meant that if you know somebody 500 kilometres away and you're in trouble in your region, you can actually go over there and get some support from them. But if you don't have that big extended network and things get sticky for you, um, then it's a lot harder for you to to recover as, as a group. So if the Neanderthals were split apart in small groups and didn't communicate much, and the sapiens did, sounds to me like that would account for more rapid advances in tools and other practices that you. I think you see in the sapiens much more than you do in the Neanderthals. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has changed in the past 30 years is that they, there was there used to be sort of a, a bit of a cliche that Neanderthals kind of evolved and then just did the same old stuff for 300,000 years. Um, and that's not fair to them. They did have their own culture history. They innovated different technologies. And we can see quite specific little regional flowerings of ways of doing things. I get the impression from your book, mm. which is wonderful, that the Neanderthals were better at conserving what they had, using it for other purposes, finding other uses for some slight advance they had made, and then staying and staying with that, not making many big changes, whereas the other guys were making bigger changes. Is that is um, that is that far off? I think really, if you look at the overall record of of the Neanderthals, so they, you know, they emerge anatomically and culturally really 
around 350,000 years ago. And over that time, there are definite changes in, in what goes on, but it seems quite slow. There are definite innovations, and they invented birch bark tar um, as an adhesive, and we just found a new They invented what? Birch tar, which you have to cook out of bark, um, and they used that as an adhesive. That's the first synthetic material um, because it doesn't you know, occur naturally. It's a completely different um, sort of change in state. But we also just found out um, that uh, there's an Italian site that shows that they were actually having a, an adhesive recipe. They were combining pine or conifer resin with beeswax, which is actually really quite inventive. Um, so they did sort of have these creative pulses and we can see it what, quick, can, before, right. before you go further can you tell me what they used those two inventions for beech bark tar what is that birch tar um it's an adhesive uh, you would use it for um well we know what they used it for it's for multi-component tools and um, so composite tools where you have a piece of stone and then you either use the birch tar it's like a lump um as a handle itself or you use it as an adhesive to um, stick a wooden handle on. So that so does sound very inventive. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the ability to stick multiple things together just cognitively is quite sophisticated, but to to understand the process of making birch tar is complex. So we can see these, these real sort of clear signs that they did have the ability to innovate, um, and I think more was probably going on than that we can even see because of the preservation. But what's really interesting is that you are right in saying that early Homo sapiens people seem to have had um, much more rapid and intensive innovation in the technology. But we really only see that after about 50,000 years ago. Before that, Early Homo sapiens actually emerged about the same time as Neanderthals did, we believe, about 350,000 years ago in Africa. And through that time, from from that point forward to sort of about 50,000 years ago, um, they actually seem to have the same tempo in their innovations and in their own changes in technology as Neanderthals. It's not really rapid and fast and like, wow, flashy stuff. Um it's much more similar to what Neanderthals are doing. Really, the the very sort of um, extreme diversity and changes and, and new inventions seems to happen rather later. So that, again, fits in with this difference that we see in the emergence of what look to be symbolic objects as well. I mean, they do have something of a, of a heritage in the, the African populations. We can see, for example... By 80,000 years ago in South Africa, there is really quite a formal graphic engraving tradition on ostrich eggshell. It's like lovely zigzags and they're sort of within little, um, you know, bounded boxes that have been engraved. And it's very distinctive. So Neanderthals did make intentional markings on objects, but there's nothing quite as formal as that at all. So the hints from the early Homo sapiens record in Africa, um, even early on, the hints themselves are a bit more impressive, but you really only get the full kind of like wow effect um, sort of appearing in Africa and in Eurasia after about 50,000 years ago. So something seems to be changing. (laughs) 
what you know, I was very surprised at your description of what they did to prepare the bodies for burial. That mm-hmm. sounded very strange to me. I know. What, what do you suppose was the purpose of what they did? First of all, what did they do? Maybe I have it wrong. I hope I have it wrong. There is evidence that entire bodies seem to have been deposited in some places in a way that they were able to be preserved, so presumably covered with something intentionally. However, the thing that has really changed is that we now see this other phenomenon happening that we didn't really sort of pay that much attention to, although we've known it since the 19th century, which is that they were taking bodies apart. That, that's, the, that's the part that I don't get. Well, that's because it's not your cultural tradition. No, but I mean, even <laughs> within their culture, on the one hand, you have bodies buried with care as if they're asleep, as if to wish them a good rest. And on the other hand, you have this description of bones broken interminably. I mean, I mean, all the bones that, that, that we got, they got, they found a way to break them, it's, it's, it seems like. What was the purpose of yeah, that? What, what was, why did well, those I two mean, things go on at the same time? The evidence that we have, um, first we, we found this was at the end of the 19th century in a Croatian site where there were remains of a lot of Neanderthals that were comprehensively broken up, butchered, smashed apart, presumably the marrow was taken out. And To a lesser scale, we see this in a lot of other sites as well. Some sites we can see definite evidence that there was eating, like there's tooth marks on the bone, for example, or burning. So the the breaking of the bones could have been for the purpose of cannibalism? For for marrow, yes. And and we can see that some of them, they are um, eating them, but it's not everywhere. But certainly the bodies are being taken apart. And in some places, it appears that the sort of percentages of cut marks, basically, on the Neanderthals' bodies are greater than what we see on what they're doing with animals. So they're taking them apart in the same way because they are extremely skilled butchers. They Mm. know how to take a body apart, no problem. But there seems to be, in some places, um, just more cut marks or more of a focus on the heads. Or Yeah, it doesn't always exactly match what they're doing with animals in the same site. So that implies that it's not identical. Something is different there. So here's a crazy idea. What if the ones that were buried, looking like they were sleeping peacefully, were friends to them and relatives, and the ones that had all their bones broken were enemies, so they couldn't get up and put their bones together and hurt them again? (laughs) Well, I mean, we can't really say that. But um, for me, when I think about Neanderthals, their entire life was focused on tools and taking a part of animal bodies. That's what they did all the time. So if they have a massive emotional trauma when an individual dies, um, there's mass, you know, huge upwellings of feelings. And perhaps one way of just dealing with that is to just do what you do with a body, which is take it apart and eat it. And it's not an act of violation as we might see it. It might be an act as a way to feel intimate again with that individual. So for me, I think that's one way that would make sense of what they're doing because, you know, there have been suggestions, oh, well, maybe the cannibalism is because they were all starving. Well, it doesn't really fit with what we see from the animals from those sites. They had enough food. You know, they're not killing um, other Neanderthals because they're totally starving. And we can see something, you know, we've only got to look at how people all over the world 
you know, do death. Uh, there's many ways to to do that. You could, I've already said about cremation and burial, but people do open sky burials, they're called, where you leave the body out to be stripped of the flesh by uh, wild birds. And then you collect the bones and keep them. And that's what we see actually in later prehistoric cultures uh, in Europe. But you asked at the beginning, did early Homo sapiens people do this as well? Did they chop the bodies up and eat them? Yes, they did. Um, certainly. And we can see that um, at least 30,000 years ago in Europe, so the people who were there 10 millennia after Neanderthals, right through all the way through prehistory into recorded history and um, the Iron Age cultures. And in fact, you only have to look at the Christian tradition. <laughs> people in, in, in the mass, they're eating the body of Jesus. You know, we forget that that's actually regarded as it's not a symbolic act it's a real thing that happens if you're a believer so we we kind of think it's very strange and odd but there are resonances <laughs> in present day yeah, well i i was glad to have two percent of neanderthal in me now i'm not sure about the rest of me When we come back from our break, I ask Rebecca Rag Sykes to speculate on one of the enduring and perhaps unanswerable mysteries about our kindred, the Neanderthals. Could they talk? I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer, Graham Chet, and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. 
Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Rebecca Rag Sykes. Is there any, any way, any way we'll ever get a clue about language among Neanderthals and early humans? We definitely have clues. We have a lot of clues. Um, we can see um, anatomically, if you start off like with their bodies, we can see that um, they had uh, what's called a hyoid bone. So that's the bone that supports your voice box. Um, there's, although it was shaped a little bit differently, um, overall, the analysis points to them having a voice box that was able to produce roughly the same sounds as ours. Um, there might have been some differences with vowels and things, but you know they were much closer to our ability to control sound than chimpanzees, for example. Um, then you can look at the inner ear bones um, inside skulls and although the shape again is different in Neanderthals what it appears to be is that um, if you look at our common ancestor with Neanderthals around 650,000 years ago from them you know our lineage went off and did its own thing and developed distinctive skulls and Neanderthals also went and developed their own distinctive skulls and the inner ear bones sort of shifted to to echo those two different kinds of skull shapes but both of them if you analyze the sound frequencies that they appear to be tuned into neanderthals look as if they are focusing on the same sound frequencies that we do which is human speech so if that's the case in both of us it implies that it also is important for our common ancestor already 650,000 years ago. So basically some kind of vocal communication must have been important for Neanderthals. To get from vocal signaling to some sense of grammar is a huge leap. The difference between my foot is on your rock and your rock is on my foot is huge. How will we ever know that they achieved that kind of sophistication at a certain point? Well... We won't know if they wrote poems, I don't think, but, well, wouldn't write writing poems, let's say spit, they composed poems. I'm not going to say that they had writing. Um, but I think we can see two things. One is that um, in terms of genetic evidence, they had a, a gene that we know in us is very involved with language. Um, and when that discovery was made, um, sort of there were a lot of headlines saying, oh, Neanderthals could talk, you know. Um, but it turns out on more careful, more recent genetic analysis that the expression of that gene 
may have been different because the protein is is not exactly the same. Um, so again, to, to actually see what that means, you would need a real Neanderthal in front of you, and we don't have that. That sounds like it could be something that would contribute to outlasting a group that didn't have it. Yes, although we don't know exactly what the expression difference would mean in practice. But in terms of arguing that they had some kind of, you know, that they basically talked about stuff rather than just grunted at each other, I would say, well, let's look at the archaeology because that is the record of what they did in their life. And if you look at that, we can see evidence that they were exceptionally good hunters um, and, you know, they're not born with claws and big teeth like, um, you know, carnivorous predators. They have to use their wits and their tools. Um, and the strong implication is that that is collaborative, cooperative hunting, um, which involves some level of planning and the ability to signal to each other during a hunt. And, you know, so there's that aspect. There's what I mentioned before, um, that what they then did with that food really points towards groups that were very much based around resource sharing. Um, so again, this kind of cooperation. Um, but also you can look at the technology, like I mentioned before, um, composite tools, um, the production of birch tar, the production of adhesive recipes. Those are really sophisticated concepts um, to be able to do. And then there are you know, other things like the skill that it takes to do particular kinds of uh, stone tool technology, napping. Um, it's not easy. It's quite sophisticated, some of the things that they were doing. I know um, I've done it. I've done that a little bit. And yeah. all I managed to do was get bits of stone in my eye. <laughs> you should wear your, your goggles. <laughs> well, I wore the exact same goggles they did. It didn't matter. <laughs> but But it's true. I mean, like, although they did make some relatively simple tools and they just made they made a lot of flakes but the way they made the flakes was extremely controlled and sophisticated and it's techniques that the you know the argument is is it possible to learn how to do these things without someone teaching you can you just learn it by copying as chimpanzees do because chimpanzees appear to really not actively teach each other how to how to do nut cracking and things it takes them years to learn it because all they do is watch and try and copy. Um, whereas if you look at the sophistication of what Neanderthals were doing, not just with stone or adhesives, but, you know, we can see really almost, you know, levels of carpentry and how they worked wood, very beautifully weighted wooden spears we've got from 330,000 years ago, where they are selecting the basal parts of trunks and branches for the tip they're offsetting it through the grain because it's more robust if you do that. These are, you know, all these skills. Can you really learn all those things without some kind of language? I don't think you can. Um, what I can't say is, again, what kind of what kind of stories they might have told. I would think if they can plan activities, then they had some kind of concept of now versus in the future, even if they're only talking about a couple of days in the future. But once you have different ideas about the past and the present and the future, that allows you, in theory, to relate memories and experiences, which is the basis of stories. So, you know, it's very, 
it's very easy to kind of have these inferential steps, but actually seeing that in archaeology is really difficult. The sense of having an awareness of now, before now, and after now seems to be embedded in the idea of a recipe. You have to do this now, and then you do that. You can't do them in the reverse order. Exactly. I mean, there is a book out recently that's arguing that um, what is called systematized thinking, uh, which is exactly what you're talking about, if I do this and this, then this will happen, um, that that only emerged with us. And I don't think that the archaeology really supports that. I think you've got to look a bit further back. You've got to look at least at the common ancestors of us and Neanderthals um, for that. So you're talking 500,000 years plus for some of these relatively complicated notions. Um, although birch tar, for example, is not that old. In fact, it seems to be uh, in Neanderthals, they've invented that by 200,000 years ago, which is that's a long time ago. Um, so I think overall we can argue that there was enough, there's enough evidence to say that Neanderthals were talking probably about their technologies, probably about each other, probably about what they were going to do the next day, maybe the next unspecified length of time in the future. But beyond that, it's hard to say. So what's an interesting picture you're painting here is that Neanderthals and we, those, those, those animals that we now call we, were developing critical capabilities along the path of their generations of lives. And it sounds like that, even though we're cautioned against thinking of evolution as leading us towards some kind of perfection, the thing that strikes me is that you're talking about moving through stages all on their own that are leading toward similar kinds of abilities, and yet one dies out or one, one doesn't survive as long as another. We, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, we may not appear to have lived very long when we disappear as, as a species and become extinct. So we might not really be living much longer than our kindred uh, animals as in the end. <laughs> well, not on a geological time scale, no. But yeah, you're right, I think... The Neanderthals were extremely successful at what they did, which was to be hunter-gatherers um, in the Eurasian environment. They were really good at that. Um, what changed that is the difficult question. You know, why did that suddenly become too difficult and something that that meant that groups were dying out somehow? Um, we, we're not really sure, but there is a real tendency in us to look back at from where we are now and say, oh, well, we must be here because we're so successful. Well, there's a lot more luck and contingency in that story, I think, than is really appreciated, and especially because, you know, as I said before, if you look at how much longer we now know early Homo sapiens were in Eurasia for interacting with Neanderthals, Neanderthals didn't die out as soon as we got there. You know, there was... 100,000 years plus 
they were still there doing their thing. In fact, they were expanding. Their population was expanding over some of that time. They were busy inventing new technologies, doing stuff. So it's not as if we arrived and wiped them out. It's very, very much not the case. Um, and also, it took us until 40,000 years ago to get into Europe. At the moment, we don't have evidence older than about 42,000 years ago in Germany, um, a bit less than that elsewhere for any Homo sapiens to be in Europe. So they were in other parts of Eurasia, but not in Europe. So why did it take us so long to get into Europe if we're so much better than the Neanderthals? We've reached the end of our time together, and I've really enjoyed it. We always end our conversations with seven quick questions. Do you mind? Oh, no, go ahead. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, um, I'd like to know what they did in the evenings after the hunt, after the day was finished. It's too dark to hunt anymore. You've got the fire. We know they sat around their hearths. We can see that in the archaeology. It's amazing. Some incredibly well-preserved sites. I want to know what they were doing in their evenings. You know, how did they relax? That's a great question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> um, I say, <laughs> I'd say, hmm, yeah, maybe, but how about this? <laughs> Nobody's asked me that before. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Oh, gosh. Um, I've had some really fantastic emails from people since this book came out so many people have emailed me and said they experienced a new connection with Neanderthals and their past and they've been moved and, and all of this but I did have a question sort of as to whether Neanderthals were anything to do with medieval Chinese cultures <laughs> I found that a bit confusing I have to say how do you stop a compulsive talker Oh, um, I don't know. Um, put your hand up and ask them a question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's suppose we're once again able to sit at a dinner table with other people and there's someone next to you you don't know, never met before. How do you strike up a true, real conversation with that person? Oh, um, hmm. I mean, most people sort of say, oh, and what do you do? But, yeah, I don't know. I think I might I might ask them what book they last read or, yeah, not sure. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? My family. Oh, nice. Last question, tied into the last answer you gave, the two, two answers ago. What book changed your life oh gosh um i think there's probably only one <laughs> truthful answer to that which is um a book that probably some of your listeners have heard of and i do talk about in kindred in my book and um, which is uh, gene owl's clan of the cave bear um which is a novel from the 1980s set in the pleistocene very well done yeah um, and I read that when I was a teenager and it's all about, you know, this young Homo sapiens girl who gets lost and is picked up by a group of Neanderthals and they look after her. But really, 
it's about what life was like 30,000 years ago and the descriptions of the land, of how you lived, that absolutely inspired me and that has that has remained ever since. I find it impossible to to read scientific papers that I read all the time without envisioning what life was like. So I think that book set that seed. <laughs> and your book, Kindred, will do the same for the next generation. Oh, I, that would make me so happy. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. I had a, I had a lot of fun with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Rebecca Rags Sykes is an honorary fellow at the University of Liverpool in the UK. She's one of the founders of the website Trowelblazers.com that highlights the role of women past and present in archaeology and the earth sciences. Her best-selling book is Kindred, the Andertal Life, Love, Death, and Art. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with my pal, the British actor Sanjeev Bhaskar. He became an actor pretty much for the same reason we all did, because he had to. I remember being maybe three or four years old, and some friend of the family came and said to me as a four-year-old, so, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, actor. And my dad said, uh, it's pronounced doctor. <laughs> and uh, so, the, you know, my passion to be involved um, in this world was there from a really early age, but th there was no real support. There was no route that I could see through to it. Um, and that came through after having some life experience. And I'm, I'm very grateful that it came that way around, I think. Sanjeev Bhaskar, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>